Welcome to the 6th Annual Texas Tribune Festival and our one-on-one with Comfort Glenhager. I am Mohan Patija, editor with the Tribune. This is the first segment in our Transportation and the Economy track. We'll have panels later today on the future of Uber and its competitors in Texas, uh, the state budget, funding for veterans, and whether state leaders have a plan to tackle congestion. Uh, some quick housekeeping. Lunch will be held on the main mall starting at 12.15. The day will conclude with a reception at the AT&T Center at 5.30. And for those who want it, there are shuttles available to provide transport between all the venues. The panel, this panel is supported by IBC Bank. Though sponsors and donors underwrite the event, they play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. Finally, please silence your phones, and if you want to tweet, remember the hashtag is PTF. And now I am pleased to introduce our first guest. Comptroller Glenn Aker was elected to the position of the state's chief financial officer in 2014. He also serves as Texas's treasurer, check writer, tax collector, procurement officer, and revenue estimator. Prior to that, he served in the Texas House of Representatives and the Texas Senate. He also previously chaired the Sunset Advisory Commission, which reviews the operation and efficiency of each state agency. Uh, he is a 1993 graduate of Texas A&M and earned a Master's of Arts and his law degree at St. Mary's University. He also attended the University of Arkansas, where he earned his Master of Laws. Please give a hand to our guest, Comptroller Hager. Good day with you, Mom. question that's probably most on people's minds right now, uh, especially in this audience, is uh, the next session mm -hmm. and revenue. So I want to start with that. I'm you know, that's usually on my mind, too. <laughs> I'm hearing a lot of gloom and doom about next session. Yeah, is it exaggerated? It, yeah, well, I think to some degree. I mean, every before you get to almost every session, there's some gloom and doom. I mean, that's just almost the legislative process, it seems like. But as uh, Tom Kira, my revenue estimator, and I've been talking about quite frequently this, this month as we've been over to either testify before House Appropriations, Senate Finance, as well as testifying in various transportation committees and different venues or given speeches, is what does next session look like? One, people have the question, are we going to hit the threshold for the 2018 transfers for transportation funding for sales tax growth to get to 28 billion and then go all the way to the 30.5 billion? That's what voters That's what, the constitutional amendment that the voters approved to try to put more money into transportation. So that's number one. And, and as it looks today, yes, we're still on track to hit that. But to answer your question with the gloom and doom of next session, my point in bringing up the transportation is when you combine two things, and this is what Tom and I have talked about over and over again, when you combine two things, one, a slowing economy. Texas is continuing to grow as an economy very modestly. Let me underline modestly, compared to what we have been over the course of the last several years, blessedly, we still are growing, uh, but, but just like I said, very modestly. So you take that modest growth plus the fact that the timing of typical growth in what we have to fund the basic uh, fundamentals, entitlement programs, and various aspects each legislative session is sales tax. I mean, sales tax, if you look at the tax portion that comes into the state treasury, sales tax is 58% of all tax collections. And then you add another 8% for motor vehicle tax, and the point being sales tax is, is the 800-pound gorilla for funding general government here in the state of Texas. And so taking the 5.5 billion for next session is the normal growth. And the two just happen to cross-sect at a time of less economic growth in Texas. So that means next session ends up being tighter just because of the revenue stream moving over. It happens to be a timing issue. Is it, just to kind of frame of reference, is it going to be as bad as 2011, you think, or is it not? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at uh, one of the things that, that I was reading the other day and I sent to uh, revenue estimating folks is, finally, we've seen where manufacturing 
uh, requests have actually picked up. And that's the first time we've had that since the fall of 2014. And why do I say manufacturing? Because if you look at the jobs that we've lost in Texas since the fall of 2014, there have been principally in two areas. One, oil and gas, obviously, and number two in manufacturing. And those, those are two of our three largest gross state product contributors to our $1.6 trillion economy here in Texas. And so we are continuing to grow jobs as a state, but we're um, growing jobs in sectors that typically pay a little bit less than those high-paying jobs. And so it's not like 2011 whereby the, the cliff just completely hit. We didn't gain jobs. We actually are seeing an increase in personal income. Yeah, I know. Well, we figured finances are so complex and everybody <laughs> understands it so well. Let's just throw another curve in there and do, do some voiceovers. Hager will sit there and ramble numbers and we'll add a little new twist to it. And everybody will walk out like, what did he say? It was part of our plan in the controller's office. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We didn't want Donna to get anything out of this today. <laughs> well, uh, as President Howard's here, I know this is an issue dear to her heart. Last year, lawmakers left billions on the table, uh, and they kind of knew early on that was probably going to happen because there was a constitutional spending cap, and right. there wasn't the political will to vote to break that. Is that even going to be an issue next session, you think? Or like, is there likely to be a lot of revenue above the spending cap? Yeah, there, there's, there's two different things when, in answering that question. One is carryover balances in the general treasury, which um, as we had estimated roughly would be a little bit over $4 billion in carryover cash. And that number is probably going to be a little bit less um, as we've seen, but um, it, it's slightly less than what we had estimated in the certification revenue estimate a year ago, and it'll probably be a little bit less than that. Um, but we'll give, obviously, that official number here in a couple months. And then number two, I think directly to your question, is the Economic Stabilization Fund. And so Texas, when I transfer over roughly $440 million here in the next month into the Economic Stabilization Fund, which is obviously severance taxes off of natural gas and, and oil severance taxes, over in per the constitutional amendment that we had back in 1987, that fund then will have $10.1 billion, which is the largest economic stabilization fund in the U.S. out of 50 states. And then in fact, what's amazing is if you would add up all 50 states, their economic stabilization funds, Texas's portion is roughly about 23% of all the fund balances. And that's one reason that earlier this year, one of the credit rating agencies was looking at the four largest state economies, California, Texas, New York, as well as Florida. And they also did another notation, but it wasn't as in depth of the top 20. And out of those four, who would be best prepared for the next recession? Not if a recession hits, but when, obviously we're not in one, but to make a point, one state was in the red, Two were in the yellow and one was in the green. Well, the one that was in the green was who? Texas. And in part because the legislature has tools in the toolbox and we have a large economic stabilization fund. But whether you're to your question, I think, um, kind of lying in the middle there uh, of your question that you didn't state specifically is, will the legislature be tapping into the ESF, I think is, is your question. Well, obviously that, that's up to them. I mean, personally, I don't think, and I think uh, Representative Howard asked me some questions similar to this in, in appropriations here earlier this year, back in April or so, if I recall. And the fact is, it's just my personal opinion, but they're the legislators. It, 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 obviously, they're the policymakers. I don't think you tap that fund 
to do reoccurring normal expenses. You need to tap that fund for long-term investments like we have taken half of it now to fund for transportation when money's put into it. We took money out of it several years ago to fund water infrastructure, the $2 billion that, that had moved out. So I think that you need to tend to the long-term balance sheet issues. And bear in mind this also, we're not in a recession. So that fund is there for those large gaps when you have significant economic downturn. And really what we have is a tapping of the brakes of the economy. And we have had a cross-section when we're moving $5 billion out of sales tax growth to fund transportation. That fund has grown so fast the past 10 years. Very fast in the last and 10 years. Far, it's gone far bigger than anyone ever envisioned. That's right. And, but in the past few years, you've heard Republicans, including Rick Perry, uh, say, we need to keep a certain amount in that fund. Basically, Who, who's Rick Perry? He, <laughs> oh, he's a dancer. That's right. Yeah. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> so you're saying you weren't voting for him on Monday? No, no. I don't watch Dancing with the Stars. My girls do. They like it. Claire, Julia, would you say hello to everybody? Well, My two biggest critics are here watching today. Well, Rick Perry and a few other Republicans have yeah. said that we need to keep a certain amount of money, billions of dollars, in fact, in the fund, basically permanently to maintain our credit rating. Your predecessor, Jimmy Cohen, said, no, that's not true. What is your opinion on that? Yeah, it, it, that's an interesting question, because I was in the legislature whenever we were talking about two things. One, moving some money out to fund water infrastructure, and then number two, whether to use half of that money to fund transportation, mm -hmm. as, as we do now, per a constitutional amendment three years ago. And, and that was really the question. Mm -hmm. it, the fact is, is if you look at the credit rating agencies, they look at a whole myriad of issues. It's not just one, this is not the only issue to hang your own, the only hat on. And, and the fact is, is there's a wide variety of things they look at. That's one metric and one metric only. Do I think, or from a funding, from a chief financial officer looking at the books, and then if you look at from a credit rating agency perspective, you need to have a fund balance so when you have that next major recession, you've got tools in the toolbox. But that doesn't mean that it is the only thing that you have to have a big fund balance no matter what. I mean, it's there for a purpose. The question that you're really asking is, what is that purpose? And, and for me, it's tending to long-term balance sheet issues. It's tending to when you have a major recession that you look around and you go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? That's when you use those funds as a bridge to help get you out of that significantly economic recession time. Are the days of the fund, the three-day fund growing, quickly over because you know, it's fed from oil and gas revenue and mm -hmm. we're in a slump now in that industry. You know what's interesting, if you, if you look at, at that slump, at least here in Texas, if you look at the Eagleford, that um, the Eagleford has actually tipped off from production significantly. And the price point to be able to make money is, is higher than out in the Permian. The Permian is the most economically feasible shell play in the United States and around the world. And so you, you see production has rolled. In other words, from its peak, it's gone down. However, it hasn't just dropped. And so the point being is this, is that production in the Permian is going to continue even at a lower price point than it has before. And so money going into the economic stabilization fund will still occur. It just will not occur at the same rapid rate that we had seen when we were transferring literally billions of dollars a year into the fund. Uh, we still see because of production levels, and if we're still in the $40 range, and if we creep a little bit higher in the $50 range, we'll, we'll continue to see monies moving into that. And what's interestingly, this year, this is the first year since the year 2000 
that we didn't hit the necessary $599 million in severance tax off natural gas collections into the general treasury because 75% above that would move over into the economic stabilization fund and obviously half of that transportation. This is the first year since uh, the year 2000 we didn't hit that level, which goes to show you how low natural gas prices and productions are. So all of the dollars we're moving over are really from oil severance taxes. And, and we'll continue to see some, just won't be the billions of dollars we've seen of the last several years. I want to talk about the current revenue estimate. Mm -hmm. And so everyone has the right frame of reference. You made the estimate in January of 2015. Yes. Session. You were predicting how the state economy and revenues would perform for a two-year period starting that September. Correct. So we are now halfway through. That's correct. Period. That's correct. Uh, you revised uh, your estimate downward. Uh, October of last year. It's about almost three billion. We we took three billion dollars off for severance tax collections, uh, and again, as I as I mentioned, and this is one point I keep trying to make, because the severance tax is so volatile over time. We and we do the best like everybody else, mm -hmm. we're trying to predict what that number is, but that number seems overwhelming. But that's not what the legislature uses for general purpose spending because it moves over into the savings account and then obviously half of it transportation now. But then what really hits the treasury is the sales tax collections and then the myriad of other taxes. And we had decreased sales tax collections by $1.6 billion at that time. So it ended up being roughly $4.5 billion that we took off the table from January when oil prices were still significantly higher. Well, and then recently uh, at the end of the first year of the biennium, you said yeah, to, to, if, if you took all the different myriad of factors, whether it's tax collections, you, you look at all the other sources of revenue, then funding that's moving out of, out of the Treasury over into the Economic Stabilization Fund, the net difference for the legislature from what we had said last year in October was $651 million. So that was a net, net difference. Now, there was also a portion that would move out because of severance taxes, and that ended up being about $950 million. That's where the slight less than a billion dollars. We've had a little bit higher income coming in on federal receipts. We've had higher income coming in on uh, also uh, general dedicated balances have been slightly higher than, than what we had anticipated. The franchise tax came in higher than we had anticipated, even with the 25% cut. We still believe some of that money will go out in refunds. However, a good portion of that will continue to stay in the Treasury. So we're the the, the, the amount you were off from January, from your original estimate, was, was, would you say the majority of that was just the oil and gas left? It, 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 it's, it's, it's directly attributed to the significant downturn in oil and gas and then how that had also a spillover effect into manufacturing mm -hmm. and then also having a higher value, trade value of the dollar, which has hurt our exports, obviously, because it's more expensive to buy things from, from us as the United States. All of those things contributed and then the peripheral spillover effect into the rest of the economy. But it all comes right back to an extremely strong oil and gas industry that also was helping the manufacturing industry and both of those went down significantly. So um, for years now we've had this debate about the Texas miracle, how Texas mm -hmm. did during the recession and whether it was essentially an oil and gas right. boom or was it you know, the state better run, we have fewer regulations, it's easier for businesses to thrive here. Uh, given that so much of the economy has been impacted by the oil and gas slump, do you think that gives credence to that argument that that was a major part of the I, I think that was a large part of it, mm -hmm. but I do not adhere to the philosophy that that was the only reason. Mm -hmm. 
because if you look, for example, one thing that I've, that I've put out uh, several times is that if you, if you look over the course of the last 10 years, I guess we've had 220 companies move to Texas just from California alone with $6.6 billion of investment. And if you just looked at that alone, they're not oil and gas companies. It's a wide variety of companies here in, the, in central Texas, in the Austin area, in this area, you're continuing to see uh, this economy continue to grow, the Metroplex is continuing to grow, San Antonio has grown, El Paso has continued to grow at a higher rate than others, and those are not directly attributed to oil and gas. I mean, if you drive around here and you look around, you go, what oil and gas is there? I mean, here in Austin is really the tech industry and others are continuing to thrive. And in part, the reason we've gained that 191,000 jobs in the last 12 months, despite the losses in those two, manufacturing and oil and gas, is really the health care sector, the tech sector, construction, as well as uh, wholesale trade and some other areas. The finance area has also continued to increase. So these other sectors have helped to offset. And the point being is when we came out of the last recession, essentially Texas came out stronger and faster because we happened to have that fracking boom at that time. It was a tremendous uh, uh, adrenaline addition is what it boils down to. And so I would say the Texas miracle in part is because the foundation that people know when they come here, here are the rules that you play by. And we have a lower cost of living as a state on, for the most part, uh, it's increasing, but a lower cost of living, cheaper housing, as well as a, a youthful workforce into the future. And those, those factors and the regulatory stability is what really brings businesses here in Texas. And then my office, the challenge is to make sure that we have a stable regulatory system from a tax environment and make sure there's consistency across the board. And that's what helps bring more businesses to Texas. We are a few weeks away from the start of early voting. Who are you planning to vote for for president? Me? Yeah, well, it's real simple. Uh, the fact is, is if you look across um, the choices that we have, I mean, I'm, I am not Hillary Clinton supporter, never have been. I'll be voting for Donald Trump. It's been very clear. Uh, I think uh, Julia, weren't you the one the other day here months ago when we were coming back from a uh, Polish festival? Me and my two girls had a date, date day at the Polish festival. And uh, Julia said, so daddy, who's left in the presidential election on both sides? Scary how an eight-year-old knows all, more about politics than most of you do. Um, <laughs> welcome to the, the daughter of a controller of public accounts. And I think, Julia, you had asked me, was Donald Trump my first choice? And I said, I don't know if you remember. Oh, you asked me, Claire? Okay, my bad, Claire asked me. Uh, see, that's the thing with daughters, you're always corrected. Um, but the fact is, is I think, I'm, yeah, she, she fact-checked me, yeah, exactly. So uh, Claire, I stand corrected, asked, and I said, well, he wasn't my first choice, wasn't my second choice. May not have necessarily been my third choice. But that's the choice I have. And I do think that from, from a wide variety of angles, and I won't get into it today unless you want to, I think, I think the choice is very clear in the election. Well, what I wanted to ask you specific to your job is, you know, last month, or recently, I think, I believe it was last month, uh, a survey of economists came out, and it was the National Association of Business for Business Economists, and 55% chose Hillary Clinton as who they thought would be best for the economy. 15% chose Gary Johnson. 14% chose Donald Trump. Is it fair to say that you think that Donald Trump in the White House would be the best outcome for the Texas economy of the choices we have left? Yes, I, absolutely I do. Why? Yeah, absolutely I do from a wide variety of reasons. I mean, one, I think, uh, and, and again, if you want to get into, I think in the current environment in D.C., very little gets done through Congress. 
the vast majority of what gets done that can harm and hinder business is through the agencies and through executive orders. And I think that really a continuation of the current administration is going to be more harmful to this, this state than would be beneficial. And I think, I think it is very, very clear that we don't need to continue to have more and more regulation through executive order put onto this economy. Because if you look across Texas, I mean, in the last 10 years, we've gained 2 million jobs. 2 million jobs. There's a reason every morning when you wake up, 650 people want to move to Texas. Why? The same reason my family did back in the mid-1800s. They want, they want to move here for an economic opportunity. And every time you take away that economic opportunity, that's fewer jobs that are in the economy, that's fewer opportunities for future generations, and I think the choice is really clear based on that alone. Now, what I haven't read the studies, and I don't know why it is, you know, is it from political, is it economics, what is it a hybrid of the mix of, of, of what they're looking at, but to me, it's real clear. Talking to something a little more fun. Yep. Goals. Okay. Uh, Governor Abbott gave, signed a bill last year, and he gave your office pretty tall orders. You have to develop the state's first depository, yes. gold depository, and you got no money to do this. Correct. Uh, how is that? And 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 no staff. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember after that bill passed, uh, my staff said, "What do we do now?" I said, <laughs> "We roll up our sleeves and we get to work." So uh, this isn't like only Texas's first depository. There isn't another no, state there, I, it, is, it has been an extremely interesting project to work on. And so I, I created a, uh, per se, a task force, a work group inside the office that was a combination of um, one of my executive staff, somebody from the Treasury, the trust company, as well as general counsel and a few others to work on this. And so really, uh, Tom Schmelker, which is the head of the Treasury operation, really took the lead on this. And, and I think uh, Tom would tell you if he was sitting here, it's been a really fun and interesting project to work on, something different than paying the bills, uh, paying $105 billion a year and running the Treasury operation. This was something unique and very different. So we put a request for information out earlier this year after we did a lot of vetting, a lot of uh, requests and, and working with, uh, talking to a whole wide variety of people that had a lot of interest in this. And so we put requests for information out. We got, I think it was roughly close to 14, 15 uh, companies had replied. Then earlier this uh, summer, we went out for a request for proposal. That uh, request for proposal was open, so obviously I won't get into too many more details on it. And those submissions are due at the end of this month, if I remember correctly. And then we will go through those, and hopefully from that, we will be able to pick someone that we can partner with, and then by the end of the year, maybe we can have a real clear direction on whether we need to go back to the legislature and have some tweaks or some changes, or whether there's anything that's necessary, and whether we need to uh, tweak the RFP. But it, it's an interesting project. I mean, it's unbelievable, because you can look at it from several different angles, whether it is a facility, one, for uh, those in Texas that want to deposit metals of their own in a segregated fashion or whether it's in a commingled fashion as in the typical banking style, whether it's an electronic payment type situation. And then uh, I think really what Texas has going for it in part is the brand of Texas is really strong right now. And, and not to be disrespectful to, to any other state, but you know, being the 10th largest economy in the world, and oh, by the way, we are. Um, let, let, let's fact check that one real quick. Um, but fact is, is the 10th largest economy in the world and one that's growing, Texas's brand for a bullion depository is much stronger than if it would be in some other state. And it's, correct me if I'm wrong, the bill requires that 
you know, everyday Texans can pause. Correct, that correct. That's correct, that's old. correct. Have you figured out, is this, are, are you hoping that this will be something that has branches around the state? Or? Yeah, it, that's a good question, which uh, we'll, we'll see what the proposals come back. Mm -hmm. it, can, it can really go either way as whether it, it's a one, one location or you ultimately have branches out. Um, to first start with, I don't see opening and flip, there's nothing you're gonna flip the switch and have 40 branches throughout the state. I mean, one, it's, it's gotta operate. You gotta pay the bills. And as you said, we have no money right now. So uh, you gotta find out this uh, creative, creative partnership to be able to make that happen. And then also go back to the legislature next session and make sure that that's really the, uh, the model that we wanna use. So, so it sounds like you're, you're seriously considering going next session to I, 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 it, I think there might be some minor things that we would have to, to tweak, but this I, is a pretty vague bill. Yeah, it was. It was a it, yes. For the most part, it is very vague, and um, but I think you know, Representative Capriglione and Senator Colcourse that worked on the bill did a good job in getting getting it through of what they wanted. But there's a few things that mismatch, and that that happens in the law most of the time. I mean, there's things that are mismatched, and you come back and you try to clarify to make sure you match those up exactly. Both you and Governor Abbott have talked about this depository bringing the state's gold back from New York. And this is um, a reference to about $600 million in gold owned by the University of Texas Investment Management Company, Utimco. The law doesn't say that Utimco has to move its That's right, back. that's right. And I've talked and I, and I don't And I don't think that necessarily should be uh, mandated mm -hmm. that whether it's Utemco or whether it's teachers or ERS or whomever, let's pretend they actually hold actual gold versus um, futures mm -hmm. in gold. I don't think that there should be a mandate. I think it should be, uh, if you create a model that works better, would be the one that should be the deciding factor, not necessarily a mandate. Well, and Utemco had told me last year that for them to be willing to move the gold to Texas from New York, it would have to be cheaper to store mm -hmm. in Texas. Right. And I believe it has to be part of the Chicago Mer Mercantile Exchange, um, because in New York, they're right, part right, of that exchange. Right. It, are you, do you feel that's realistic that that could happen with the depository in Texas? Well, I think that, that definitely that, that's an opportunity and an option, but then one, the question is whether Utemco even wants to continue to hold $600 million in gold assets or not. They, um, they used to have more, now they have less. And so really, I do think that it's an opportunity that the depository will actually occur. It's going to uh, be in existence. I'm, I'm very convinced of that in some form or fashion and what the actual details look like and who participates in that. I think that's uh, kind of how they say that's, that's uh, Paul Harvey. That's the rest of the story. We'll hear you tell you that to you next. So we'll have to see how that turns out next year. We're gonna um, take it to questions from the audience and after just a couple more questions for me. Uh, you were in the Texas House uh, in 05 mm -hmm. and 06 when um, Ford had ordered the state to overhaul school finance. Mm -hmm. I believe it took a session and then three special sessions. Yes, I still have nightmares about all those <laughs> special sessions. Uh, so there's no court order this time, but there's a lot right. of interest in right. overhauling school finance. Do you, especially thinking about that, that during that period, do you think that's something that can get done this time? School finance is always extremely difficult. I've uh, had some meetings here recently, and I've just made the point that when I was in the house, I had 14 school districts. And when you get the runs, as in whatever we changed in school finance, there's typical winners and there's typical looters. And it, it's really hard when you have multiple districts and then you take multiple members that obviously have the same array, it, it's hard to get something passed. Uh, I think that from, from, and everybody hears just as much as I do, it seems as though the leadership in the Texas House really would like 
to tackle some type of school finance this session. Um, there's a discussion in the Senate about some type of dealing with uh, public education. And so what are they able to actually get accomplished? I don't really know. That's obviously up to the membership, but I will say it is extremely hard. It is probably one of the hardest things to accomplish is passing something to deal with school finance because one, it is such a complicated system with a marriage of the state as we as taxpayers with that of us as local taxpayers with over a thousand school districts. You were the Senate sponsor of HB2, mm -hmm. uh, a bill that um, involved in the abortion regulations mm -hmm. and that contributed to the closure of a lot of clinics in Texas. Uh, US Supreme Court overturned m much of that law. Uh, and I know that passing that was very you know, high right. point for your career. You were very proud of it. Just wondering, what are your thoughts on this voters ruling? and? Are you, are you hoping the legislature kind of makes up for lost ground? Yeah, I mean, I, I was very disappointed in, in the ruling, needless to say, especially uh, on the ambulatory surgical centers. And, and so the piece of legislation that I had in the regular session, which moved from 24 weeks to 20 weeks um, because of fetal pain, that wasn't even challenged. So that portion of the law that I originally carried in, in the regular session is in law. It wasn't even legally challenged, period, um, which I which I thought was pretty remarkable, and most people told me that it would never be held constitutionally, but I took a view from looking at all the different states that had passed a similar piece of legislation, some that had been upheld, some, most of them that had been challenged and, and, and created a, a, a constitutionally viable uh, piece of legislation. I'm disappointed, of course, a lot of people bring up that bill was the reason these clinics closed. There were a lot of those clinics that were closing even before that bill passed from financial standpoint. Some of them obviously did close because of that bill. There's, there's no doubt about that. It was probably a combination between the two. Now, whether the legislature is gonna try to tackle that this legislative session, I, I, have, I have no idea. Okay, well, uh, thank you for uh, your time today. Any, any questions from the audience? Under the Strayhorn administration. Yes. Are there any plans? I know you have a gold depository worried about. But a and a lot of, a, and, a, and a revenue estimate come January. <laughs> and a revenue estimate is surreal. Whatever you want it to be. Uh, but are there any ideas? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I had talked about uh, before being in, in office that I thought that it would be a good idea to update the study, but I, I will say this, right now we don't have plans to update it. As of today, we have a lot of projects that we're working on internally to um, talk about some issues the legislature has to address. We've got a lot of different research. We just did a story on um, the Economic Stabilization Fund, the history of that, and our fiscal notes article. We've got a couple this coming uh, cycle, one on millennials, which I think is a big issue because millennials are replacing the baby boomers in workforce, and what do they expect and what do they want? And I think that's a real struggle for businesses to try to make sure that we match up and have a workforce 
that, that is there. And so we're, we're talking about that as well as uh, we, we've got another article that is, deals with healthcare and uh, healthcare is a main driver for the budget. So my point being is it's something that's probably on the list, but it's not at the very top of the list because one of the question is what angle do you come at it from? If it, the real clear reality is if you look at illegal immigration, local government, it's a cost. State government does not contribute as much or pick up as much of the burden as the local government does. So I don't even have to do the study and I'm almost tell you the outcome that for local government, it's a tremendous burden. For state government, who doesn't contribute as much, yes, there's public education, there's potentially some health care. Um, it ends up not being as significant, obviously, as, as the local level. I mean, that, those researches have, have kind of been done over and over again. And, and the question is, I have legislators that always say, hey, look at this. But it, it's interesting as in which angle do you want me to look at it from? Because you, skew, you can potentially skew the outcome, obviously, like most research can. Well, in the original study uh, from 2006, I believe, said uh, that illegal immigration contributed $17.7 billion in gross domestic product to the state. To the state. And Susan Combs took the study down on the site, of Trumpler's site, when, um, when she came into office. She took Carol's name down pretty quick, too, I think. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, do, do you actually, is it... Do you think the study wasn't valid at the time? No, I, well, I'll tell you, um, my chief revenue estimator, Tom Keir, he worked on that project. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, Tom and I have talked about it because he was one of the lead uh, researchers on it. And that was a very hard project to work on, trying to really get the data and put it into something that truly gets to the end result. Um, and it, it's one that I think there's a lot of other research that we can work on that is good facts, good data, good information. We're working on one right now. I did, I did a uh, tour this summer of our, our, our military installations. And uh, it was real good, hard data facts about what the economic contribution is of our 13 military installations here in Texas. And then here this fall, I'm gonna do one talking about our ports and the importance of our seaports, our air, air uh, ports coming in, as well as our land points, and so the team is working on that. But we, that is a really good project to talk about how important trade is here to Texas, whereas the economics of immigration are a lot, it's a lot cloudier and a lot harder to get to. And so I think we should be working on the other projects right now. Yeah, that's a good question. The, 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 the legislature has passed some different legislation over the course of the last several years trying to help and stimulate the, the wine industry. I mean, I think that promotion of Texas wine is, is important. Obviously, um, you have to be logical that if you're going to put wineries on the Gulf Coast, it's probably not going to work out too good. Thing called humidity. Uh, Grapes and vines don't like humidity too well, uh, create fungus and, and you're not gonna have it up in more arid regions. My point is being logical. You know, let's not just say we're gonna have one right here. Well, it's, it doesn't, they, don't, they don't grow very well there. They grow up where the wind blows and it's a little bit more arid areas. And so I think that the state can play a role in a promotional standpoint, but we have to be careful when we talk about any economic development incentives because it has to be a net benefit to the taxpayers at the end of the day. And that, that's my bottom line litmus test. Is there a benefit to the taxpayers? Yes, ma'am. Ma I would love to ask, since we obviously are not gonna have enough money to get all our fresh 
about doing a study on the, the economic impact of public-private partnerships and taking some private capital to launch those projects to create jobs? Yeah, we don't we don't have a project in the works right now on that issue. That that's one that obviously a um, a lot of states and countries have looked at as an opportunity or an option when funding for infrastructure has been strapped significantly because of other priorities or spendings. But here um, in Texas, you know, as you know, we did public-private partnerships for road transportation, and the last one of those, I think, has been signed by TxDOT, and the legislature pulled those back significantly. And so I think here in Texas, if public-private partnerships are, are going to come back, it's probably going to be a time period before they would come back. You'll probably see some things in water infrastructure, possibly, because there's such a need for water and for our growth. I mean, if you talk about the Achilles heel of the Texas economy, I, I would argue that that would be water infrastructure. I, I would say that that is the biggest impediment to any type of economic development potential into the future. Yeah, I think in the last legislative sessions, the legislature has purposely pulled back from that as an option and pulled back, if we want to talk about road infrastructure, from indebtedness, because we had quite a few bonds that we passed, the voters approved, pulled back from those, and that's the reason half of the money that moves over to the Economic Stabilization Fund was dedicated to transportation. 2.5 billion in sales tax growth started in 2018. 35 percent of the increase above five billion for motor vehicles tax in 2020. So I think that what you've seen from the legislature as a whole overall is a collective desire to find other revenue sources other than greater debt as well as greater public-private partnerships. Now can that come back? Maybe so, but in a few different areas, not necessarily road transportation today. That, I mean, that's just what I see over the course of the last three and four sessions. But touching on this topic, uh, the company behind Texas 130 Tolo mm -hmm. essentially walked away from the project. Right. Uh, have you been in conversations at all about what that means for the state? Or well, really, there's there's not necessarily an obligate. Well, the state gets gets the road. We don't have to pay for it. We get the road. Obviously, you pick up the maintenance from there forward as, as having the road. And so really, that's not necessarily been a net um, burden for the state because the state picks up that road. Um, but the state could always close down the road if for some reason purpose. But we do have a, a fairly well-built road, and now we just have to keep up, would, ha would be picking up the maintenance on that road. But most of those, I mean, I think that one, that one's different than the other public-private partnerships because the others have been in high metropolitan areas with a lot of ridership. But if you go into certain areas, people are a little fatigued from tolls. I mean, and I think that's one of the reasons that there's been a pullback from at least road construction because you have that additional hidden, and some would argue it's a hidden tax because you get it every month with your toll bill. But most people know when they drive down it, they know they're going to pay that $5 to get down the road. Oh, yeah. So, uh, we're seeing a lot of <clears throat> disruption and, and transformation in key industries uh, uh, like the taxi industry with Uber and Lyft, uh, the lodging industry with Airbnb. Mm -hmm. um, is your office uh, taking a look at that and, and how that impacts um, the uh, state businesses and therefore how our economy works and what they do? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. In particular, with the Airbnb. Yeah, it's because it's a really good question. 
in particularly with the Airbnbs, and there's been a lot of litigation both on the local levels, in other words, some of the major cities, whether they should be collecting uh, hotel motel tax and, and what is the rate that they collected on. And so you're seeing that industry having to move from a model that was very small and kind of under the ground per se, didn't really matter that much, to one that's grown significantly. And then therefore now it becomes a target as in, wow, this is a pretty good portion that the locals in the state are losing out on. And so we're, we try to pay attention to those and we also try to get engaged. And obviously from the state tax collection side, we're involved in, in, um, in tax cases and ultimately hopefully wouldn't, wouldn't lead to litigation, but it may on some of these variety of issues, but not necessarily on the Uber and Lyft right now. Well, I'm not, I think it was, it may have been Marco Rubio that was said in one of the debates that the largest transportation those lodging company doesn't own a single room, and to your point about it's not the model we're used to, and that therefore it affects taxation and revenue. And Sig significant shifts, significant shifts potentially over time. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, good. Yeah, no, good, good question, Ken. What we have an article coming out in our fiscal notes for, I think it's the October issue, I was just reading over uh, the last couple of days that deals with healthcare expenditures. And so it's not necessarily on the question you're talking about, but what we're trying to highlight is the amount of monies that the state budget actually appropriates and spends in the healthcare area and to what that has gone up-wise as a percent of the budget of the course of several years to highlight, once again, what in part we pretty much all know that for all of us we're struggling with, whether it's individuals, businesses, and or governments, as in the rise in healthcare costs. And what are those drivers? And that's something that we're, we're trying to point out. I have not been asked to do a study specifically on that. Um, I, I would kind of probably, um, defer right now because that that's one that would take a significant amount you know of, of my staff's time and we've got we pretty much we can do it but we've got scripted out we try to script out a lot of our research projects a good year in advance so the team knows and they can manage their workload to get those projects out and so that that's one that uh, this state and that's the reason we did the healthcare expenditures and where the growth has really been and what are the areas we're spending just to highlight again because as you know that is an area that public education had always been the biggest portion of the budget, and now health care has equaled it, and this next session will probably take it over. Yeah, I would say maybe just kind of lighten this up a bit. Um, you, you have the distinct honor of getting to go sit in the weekly meetings with the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the house during the session, and you also have the unique perspective of having served in the house and the senate. Right. Which none of them have. So is that like just a love fest? Everybody gets along, has fun. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I always always laugh because people ask me, "Can you tell me the um, the differences between the House and the Senate?" And I usually say, "Well, I'm I can, but it's it's easier to tell you 
what the similarities are and say, okay, well, what are the similarities? <laughs> they both get 600 a month, <laughs> and that's it. And so sitting in that room, it, it, was, it was interesting from that vantage point that obviously the three, they're the three that are, that are working out where they're going. I'm, I'm just the finance guy, which it was helpful being there because we're, we're constantly looking at the numbers. We're sitting there, and the, and the budget is the one and only thing they have to do. So if, it was interesting from that vantage point because I ended up being the topic of conversation or the budget and the numbers ended up being the topic of conversation for a huge portion of the breakfast, especially on the beginning portions before they start working on legislation towards the middle of session where that really gets going. And so it was interesting from that, but I'd also say there were times I would walk out because it's, it's us four and then our four chiefs of staff, and I'd look at my chief of staff, Lisa, and I'd go, they're not even speaking the same language. <laughs> you know, the governor's coming in from an executive, and he's only, he's only been in the executive branch. Dan's only been in the Senate. Joe's only been in the House. I've been in all three, and I was like, this is kind of comical because they're all playing a different sport, but they don't even know the rules of the other one's sports. I'm over-exaggerating, but it, it is interesting because to see them talking at times, I'm sitting here going, I know what they're saying, but the other one, because of the rules, the process, the procedures, you know, the Senate goes, well, you know, why don't you just get together and y'all get together and do this? Well, there's 150 members in the House. The Senate, we can caucus and we get together in a few minutes, Bill, yep, that's what we're doing and let's roll. People gripe, well, you're, you're never in session. Yeah, because we're on five committees in the Senate, where the House is typically on two or three, and you're in session all the time, because it's 150, at the, not lined up at the back moment. But it, it's so different process, and you see that in the breakfast to some degree. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I might boycott next session. We'll see. Um, we'll see. You know, I, what bothers me is this, is that we're willing to go have breakfast at the mansion. Okay, that's kind of cool. Go have breakfast at the, at, over at the speaker's apartment or the lieutenant governor's reception room. But not one of them has been willing to come to my old dumpy LBJ building. <laughs> I'm like, I can get breakfast tacos brought in. Uh, we can do something. No, they won't come have breakfast at my place. So I feel slighted, so I might boycott next session. I have. And they go, well, not until you fix the place up. Well, not until you give me money to fix the place up. Put my plug in for deferred maintenance before we get out. On that topic, topic of numbers and deferred maintenance, is there something, um, a budget driver either for the upcoming session or for the long term, that you think that is being underreported or that we aren't talking about? Yeah, no, no thank you for that. Uh, last session, I had put together, it just kind of dawned on me reading credit rating reports, and by the way, if y'all have insomnia, try to read some because it's pretty bad, um, but it made me appreciate that what are the, long, the list of long-term liabilities? And you kind of know them, but what are the numbers? One of the things that I think that is significantly underreported and probably agencies truly don't have a real grasp of is their technology needs and moving Texas literally into 2016, because I would say in my agency alone, I've been very kind of shocked how antiquated and, and old systems that we are. Now that doesn't mean that I wanna go and start a new um, IT project for a new tax system. You know, we're, we've, we've blessedly worked some money for the legislature to kind of patch up and hire some folks with, with old skills. And I'm talking about old skills. There's not many of these people left with these old type of, of, of programs that we have. And so I, that's one, and it's interesting, I was thinking about that literally the other day while I was driving down the road, because we're trying to make sure we have a grasp of that internally, 
but trying to get that grasp with all the other agencies, that's one that I think is significantly um, underreported. And managing those projects to make sure they come in on time and they come in on budget. And that's, and that's what you've seen as the legislature has talked about recently about contracting is in part because of that, uh, that task. But I think that Deferred Maintenance Facilities Commission has done a good job of getting their arms around that, trying to come up with a plan. The legislature put some money into it last session, so that one is on the radar. Pensions, they put money into pensions last session, gave money to state employees to raise their contributions, so we're on a path to pay that down. Um, we know that TRS care and that, that, that issue is out there, so that's kind of highlighted, but that's one that I think the legislature is really going to need to try to deal with next session rather than just funding the short, the short gap funding status of it. But IT, I would say, is the biggest one. Thank you. Is there off-office asking for next session or any money for some big? No, we, we, we have no uh, exceptional items in our uh, legislative appropriation request. Um, we are continuing to work on the CAPS implementation as we have been slowly taking down so many agencies, every biennium, to bring them on for human resources and payroll into one central system. And so next session, it, we'll just see how the budget process works out, whether what we make a decision to do is either extend the life out for another biennium, as in keeping it at the current cost, or whether we try to add a little bit more money to bring agencies on quicker. But we have not put an exceptional item in for that. I figured we'd wait till next session just to see where we're at, whether that's something that we want to try to continue on the same pace, or whether we push it out another couple. We'll keep adding people, just whether we keep adding it at the same rate because of, because of cost. Oh, we are out of okay. time now, so uh, All right. join me in thanking Uncle Robert.